morning, everyone. Today, um, believe it or not, is the third Sunday in Advent. I remember as a kid being in a church that celebrated the church calendar, and there were four Sundays in Advent. There was a, um, an Advent wreath that they had at the front of the church made of pine, so you got that pine smell coming in early, and it was lit with candles. Only once do I remember the candle actually set fire to the Advent wreath. Uh, the rest of the time, it was all good. And today, we also reach the end of our series of the book of Jonah. And this is chapter four, and this is the episode that I kind of wish we didn't have to turn to, but it's in the Word of God, and so we do. I kind of like happy endings. I like endings with resolution, with a resolve. I like movies that finish well. If you've ever seen, for example, Alfred Hitchcock's movie, The Birds, what is that? What happens at the end? There's mystery throughout the whole thing, and it's like it just ends, and it's like... Why? I just wasted an hour and a half of my life that I'll never get back. Um, I, um, I've been doing um, some reading. Um, I like to read good stuff to edify me, but I also like to, to read some fiction. And I thought, as a bit of a challenge, I should read some of the classics. So I've been downloading some classics off the internet because I'm cheap. And... Um, they're free. And uh, I've been reading, you know, Treasure Island, Journey to the Center of the Earth, um, stuff like that. Um, the other day I downloaded Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Um, now I know this story pretty well because back in grade seven in 1981, I got to be in the school play of A Christmas Carol. So I know how it goes. Anyway, I was reading through and I got to the last page and uh, Scrooge is there and he's knocking at the door of a property and a woman comes and greets him and says, yep, I'll take you in to see, I think it was his nephew. And it stopped. It's like, what? I'm scrolling up the page, there's nothing there. And it's like, what is this? It's not the end of the book. So I had to um, download another version, and um, I saw that, um, in fact, the version I had was a very cheap version. In fact, I should have realized this because at the top of each page, rather than saying Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, it said D.H. Lawrence, Sons and Lovers. So I should have realized this, that it was probably not going to end well. Now, the fourth chapter of Jonah is similarly, in some ways, puzzling, mysterious, and disturbing because it reminds us that despite witnessing the miraculous intervening power of God firsthand, in our sin-prone state, we remain but a heartbeat away from the possibility of spiritual regression. Jonah 4 reminds us that despite our spiritual growth, we must continue to live and abide in the grace of God in the shadow of the cross. So let's pray together and ask God to breathe upon his word today. Heavenly Father, we need your help today because our hearts are hard and they grow cold. And we often often can hear your word and see how it applies to others, but neglect to see how it impacts our own life. So Father, would you come today in your grace, in your mercy, and shine your light into our hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just as an aside, one thing I've been thinking about over the past few weeks, we've heard three messages on Jonah, and we've, we've heard a lot about Jonah. We've heard about Jonah um, on the run, Jonah on the ship, Jonah in the fish, Jonah this, Jonah that, Jonah, 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 and I'm thinking, what about the rest of his family? We don't know much about his family, but in fact, it turns out he's got some siblings, and I searched on the internet, and I actually found a photo of Jonah's brothers. 
So um, there they are. So we, we owe them respect for being good brothers. So if you don't know why that, why that was partly amusing, you need to ask someone a whole lot younger than I am. In many ways, it'd be really nice if Jonah's story ended on a high spiritual note, say at the end of chapter three. If it just ended, if um, the, the Bible scholars of ancient times kind of lost the last part of the letter, we can all have a good time and go home and feel good about the ending, but it doesn't. The story of Jonah thus far has highlighted the grace and mercy of a God who will not let us go. There was mercy for Jonah, who'd been given a great commission. Even though he rebelled at the idea of preaching to the Ninevite pagans, God pursued him in grace to turn him from his folly and restore him to his calling. So God's mercy included the storm. And that's a powerful thing for us to remember, that God's mercy can often include things that we wouldn't normally recognize as his mercy. Some of the stuff that we walk through in our lives that we resist and we hate and we just think what possibly good, what possible good can come out of this, it's God's mercy when we look back afterwards. So don't neglect God's storms in our lives. God's mercy included the storm. It included the great fish and the gift of repentance which Jonah found inside the fish. There are some interesting things which get found inside a fish. Jonah found repentance inside a fish. In the New Testament, Peter found a coin to pay the temple tax. And in one of the early episodes of Gilligan's Island, Gilligan found a radio inside of a fish, which they hoped would help him be rescued from the island. Didn't work out, hence they had several seasons of the show. As well as the mercy extended to Jonah, we saw God's mercy fall upon the pagan sailors who, in the end, called out to God and showed great evidence of repentance and fruit thereof. Uh, We saw God's mercy poured out on the Assyrian capital and God used Jonah's preaching to bring revival to Nineveh, one of the great revivals in world history. The people repented and the king led the way. Can you imagine what an awesome thing it would be for the leader of our nation to come to the Lord radically and to lead the nation in repentance? That would be an awesome thing. The book of Jonah is all about mercy. All about mercy. So what a case for rejoicing. You'd think that Jonah... In chapter 4, it would just be a song of praise to God for all of his mercy, all of his goodness, all of his kindness to people who don't deserve it. Surely we'd expect to see him leaping for joy and praising God. But instead, stunningly, we find Jonah in what one commentator describes as the worst blue funk imaginable. But even beyond his depression, Jonah was angry about what happened, violently angry. So let's pick up the account at the last verse of chapter three. So Nineveh had repented at Jonah's preaching, and then we find this in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And into chapter four. But, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. 
Can you picture the late Billy Graham? At one of his rallies, thousands of people have just come forward to receive salvation for the first time, and he's in a rage. He's in a hissy fit. He can't believe it. He's angry that these people have come forward. That's what Jonah's doing at the moment. It's almost impossible for us to believe. But life is full of contradictions. And perhaps, disturbingly, the response of Jonah is not as far away from each one of us as we would like. Jonah was angry. He'd obeyed God to the letter, eventually, at great personal cost. Jonah had told the Ninevites the word of the Lord that judgment was coming in 40 days, but it didn't eventuate because the people repented and God relented. So Jonah feels betrayed. He felt that God had made him out to look like an idiot because things hadn't happened according to his prophecy. His focus was completely on himself. Incredibly and tragically, Jonah gave no thought whatsoever to the people of Nineveh, who that day, by God's providential grace, had found salvation. He should have rejoiced at their deliverance, like the shepherd who found the lost sheep, like the woman who found the lost coin, like, like the father who embraced his prodigal son who'd returned and repented. But instead, Jonah was ticked off because Nineveh had not been wiped from the map. And tragically, I can relate to that. Because to be honest, there are times when God's mercy makes me angry. It's so easy to demand God's judgment be brought upon sinful man in our way, in our timing, according to our means. But we fail to see that we may very well be calling down judgment upon ourselves. We trivialize our own sin and magnify the sin of others. Our natural heart condition screams out, mercy for me, but judgment for others. We admire Paul's humility in announcing himself as chief of sinners but we have no idea what he means, nor how that title can possibly apply to us. Well, to his credit, being angry in a, in a state of emotional unrest, Jonah took a really good first step. He went to the Lord, but then he stumbled. Verse two, and he prayed to the Lord, that's really good, and said, O oh Lord, that's good. Is not this what I said? That's bad. That is bad. When I was yet in my country, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Someone once said that anger is only one letter away from danger. It's the D, the D. Just put the D at the start. Jonah's emotional state had led him to the precipice. God warns us not to sin in the midst of our anger. Anger is a dangerous state to be in. It's not always wrong, but the anger places us 
in a state of grave danger. God's anger is always righteous. Our anger, even our so-called righteous anger, is always tainted, if not completely stained with our sin. That's what my life has shown me. Even in my most noble moments of anger, there's sin mixed in with it. In Jonah's anger at God, we can see some significant issues. Firstly, Jonah tried to justify himself both in his own eyes and in the eyes of God. He tried to justify his disobedience. He effectively said, Lord, this is exactly the reason I didn't want to go to Nineveh. What's more, as we can see now, I was right in refusing. In our lives, when things don't turn out as we'd wished, do we seek to justify our disobedience and try to blame God? Adam did it in the garden. He was found out for his sin, and it was like, Lord, it was this Eve who you gave me who caused me to sin. Do we blame God for our failures? Jonah was trying to do the old, I told you so, with God, but he was terribly mistaken in his approach and in his understanding of the situation. We need to learn that it's not our call to ascertain the appropriateness of an outcome, nor are we responsible for the outcome. What we are responsible for is obeying the will of God. It should have been enough for Jonah to know that he had been found faithful in his obedience to the call of God. But Jonah stepped beyond his jurisdiction and became angry at the results of his obedience, something that he couldn't control. The results of our obedience are something that God alone governs. So you might remember the old Keith Green song. It said, just keep doing your best and pray that it's blessed and Jesus takes care of the rest. Our job is obedience and faithfulness. God alone determines and defines success. Another thing Jonah did in his anger was that he tried to use God's word against God himself. He tried to quote God's word back to him in a twisted desire to show his own righteousness and God's injustice. You can see how easily Jonah's anger has led to danger. This is dangerous ground indeed. Jonah knew his Pentateuch. He knew exactly what God had revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34 and from verse 6 when God said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. It's a beautiful self-revelation of God. James Montgomery Boyce puts Jonah's thoughts like this. He says, now... Is this or is this not what you have said? And if it is what you've said, why did you send me to Nineveh with a message that you never intended to fulfill? Is it not true that I, Jonah, am the consistent one and that you are wrong? 
That's what Jonah's effectively saying. It's pretty frightening stuff because it reminds us of someone else in the New Testament who attempted to twist the word of God and use it against God. It was the devil's temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Satan used the word of God to try and justify evil and to tempt Jesus to doubt the goodness and integrity of God. Incredibly, that's the same game that we see Jonah playing here. He sought to justify himself and prove God wrong by use of Scripture. And it's a warning to us. We are never to take our agendas to Scripture so we can find proof texts. We don't go to Scripture to support our authority and our agenda. We approach Scripture as the authority and agenda. We don't go to God's word to criticize it. We go to God's God's word to have it criticize us. It's with a heart of submission and humility that we need to go to scripture because anything else will inevitably create a distortion of our understanding of it. Well, Jonah is not only angry and foolish, he's also got a death wish. We saw him despairing of life on board the ship And he offered himself to be thrown into the tumultuous waters, which would have led to certain death if God hadn't intervened. But in God's grace, he rescued him via the big fish, brought him to Nineveh. He's been a successful prophet and evangelist. But now, it seems, he's returned full circle. Verse 3 shows Jonah's despair. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. John Calvin wrote in his commentary on Jonah, no one will be a willing prophet or teacher except he be persuaded that God is merciful. God calls us to serve him primarily in relation to other people. The extent to which we can convey the heart of God to others is determined by the extent to which we appreciate God's mercy to us. If we downplay our hopeless, hell-bound, wretched state and the grace it took to save us, if we minimize that, we will never find the grace we need to extend to others. Jonah was frustrated because Nineveh wasn't punished. It seems we are very good at receiving grace and mercy, but not so good at seeing others similarly lavished. We want grace all for ourselves. I really can see that in my life as I look around at times. I see my reactions, my my heart when it bubbles forth. I really would be quite happy to have grace all for myself at times tragic. In the parable which Jesus told about the workers in the vineyard, the workers which agreed to work all day were very happy to work for a denarius until they discovered that there were others who were working less hours who were also getting paid a denarius. It's such a tough issue for us to deal with. It challenges the heart, uh, envy. We've got this perceived sense of injustice, but it often differs 
from God's truth. In summarizing the parable, Jesus said in Matthew 20 from verse 13, and this hammers me every time. But he answered one of them, friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Am I envious because God is generous? I want grace all for myself. All too often I forget that I too am an undeserving sinner, an object for wrath, destined for wrath and destruction, but for the grace of God. One of Jonah's primary problems, he'd forgotten God's mercy toward him. He'd forgotten that he needed God's mercy. We can't afford to do that. We did nothing to earn our salvation. It's not because we were nice or basically good or better than the next person or because God could see our potential or because we did something right that God saved us. He saved us because he saved us because of his mercy and for no other reason. Hence, there are no grounds upon which we can boast except the cross of Christ. Our salvation should be the most humbling thing in all the world. Jonah had lost sight of that to his peril. The only reason he had breath was because of God's mercy. The only reason he was a prophet was because of God's mercy. The only reason he hadn't perished in the storm or in the fish was because of God's mercy. We need to learn from the lessons of his life so that we can be spared making the same error. If we think back to Jonah chapter 2, when I think it was Michael who shared a couple of weeks back the prayer of Jonah from within the fish, we recall God's marvelous grace that Jonah realized and the extraordinary prayer of repentance and resolution that he prayed at that time. And yet, despite that spiritual high point for him, he was still a work in progress. He was still unwilling to see the compassion of God towards Nineveh, and he resented God's mercy towards them. Well, God answers Jonah's childish and nonsensical rant with a question. Verse 4, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Rather than addressing every finicky thing that we rave on about, God often cuts to the heart of the problem and he often likes to ask us questions. He did so with Adam and Eve in the garden. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? What is this you have done? He questioned Cain, where is your brother Abel? What have you done? He asked of Job, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Similarly, God's questions to Jonah are aimed at getting right to the heart of the matter. 
That's what God's word will always do to us. If we listen to the Holy Spirit and if we humble ourselves, if we come to God's word to have it criticize us, we should always expect to receive his relentless and sometimes pretty uncomfortable grace. The book of Jonah ends with an account that in some ways is peculiar, but which illustrates Jonah's self-centeredness and error and God's grace and righteousness. Rather than slapping Jonah around with a wet fish, which is what he does deserve, in his mercy, yet again, God depersonalizes the whole situation by means of a parable so that Jonah can grab hold of God's message from a different perspective and see the analogy. Let's pick it up from verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So it's kind of like driving up to Windy Point there, looking out, looking out over the, the city of Adelaide and waiting for the fireworks show. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Don't let it ever be said that God does not care for the beef industry. <laughs> but that's it, the book, the book ends. It ends there, and you can't go to the internet and search for a free PDF of a different version of Jonah so that you can find what happens next, because what happens next is between God's Holy Spirit and what he does in your heart. It, it wasn't, it's not like they'll ever go to the, 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 the caves in, in the cliffs in Israel there and find another fragment of, of, of scripture that they can say, we've found the end of chapter four. This is it. This is what God ordained in his word. It's supposed to finish like this. Just like, okay. God ends with a question. And we never get to hear what Jonah's response is. We don't hear from Jonah again. Presumably, as a man of God whom God had been pursuing, Jonah eventually came around and repented of his folly and was restored to effective service for his king. But this literary account doesn't give us any answers. Rather, it leaves us with a question. God posed the question to Jonah, but he's really asking it of each one of us. 
God is reminding us that his ways are so much higher than our ways. God is reminding us that we are merely the creature and he alone is the creator. God is calling us to obedience and faithfulness. We need to be satisfied with being found obedient and faithful. And when we look at the results of our obedience and faithfulness, we need to rest in the fact that God is perfectly good and perfectly righteous and perfectly just and perfectly wise and perfectly merciful. Do we trust him enough to let him outwork his plan of history? Or do we see life is all about employing God into our story? Is it about employing God into our story or is life about us being overwhelmed at the gracious invitation to be part of his story? Whenever our thoughts and ideas differ from God, no matter how noble and right we might think we are, we are always in error. God is always correct and righteous and true. So if we differ, if we have an alternate opinion to God, we need to pull our spiritual heads in, get off our spiritual high horses, repent of elevating our authority and of doubting God's integrity and find his mercy once again. And that mercy is only to be found at the foot of the cross, the site of the greatest act of injustice that the world will ever see. There at the cross, we see something which was not fair. The righteous punished instead of the unrighteous. The innocent condemned so that the guilty might go free. The Lord of life suffered death so that those under a just death sentence might receive life and life abundantly. At the cross, the spirit of Jonah cries out for the innocent to be acquitted and for the guilty to be punished. The spirit of Jonah would call for hell and damnation to be dealt justly on those deserving of it. But in the wisdom and unfathomable grace of God, he satisfied justice in the punishment of his own beloved son so that he might pour his mercy and love upon those he would call his own special people, a people belonging to God, adopted as sons, heirs with Christ of a glorious destiny. As Jonah realized at the end of his prayer in chapter two, salvation comes from the Lord. The spirit of Jonah lives on in every one of us to varying degrees. We elevate our own self-importance. We question God's righteousness and integrity in the light of events that we see around about us. We deem ourselves very deserving of the mercy and grace of God and yet are only too quick to call down judgment upon the wicked. It's no wonder God closes the book of Jonah with a question because it's a question that penetrates to the core of our being questions our motives, weighs our heart. How great is God's mercy? How great is God for his mercy? How can we who have received so liberally of that mercy be less than merciful to others? 
How can we do less than love them and proclaim the beauty of the gospel to them with all the strength at our disposal? How can we fail to stand along Isaiah and share in his profound resolution, here am I, send me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the book ends with a question. And Father, it's a question that we will dismiss unless your Holy Spirit comes to us in grace and lets the penny drop and lets the light come on, unblocks our ears, smashes our hardened hearts so that we can fall at your feet and see the grace that poured down from the cross for a wretch such as me. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your work persevering with us despite our resistance, despite our self-righteousness. Father, continue to smash our idols in our lives. Continue to open our eyes to see your glory and your beauty so that we might be vessels who can be used for your glory and our great joy in Christ. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Saviour, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. God bless you.